Well, we're going to talk about judgment today. We've talked about it last Sunday. We all have a divine appointment with our Creator. When I was a child, I'm not sure how it got in there, but I somehow along the line got some misguided perceptions. I'm sure it wasn't the faithful minister's fault, but somehow the term judgment day just brought to my mind, maybe it was uh, songs I had heard, maybe it was visions I had seen or, you know, on some movie or something, but whatever the case was, I was left with the impression that there was coming a time when everybody would stand before God and one by one they would walk before the tribunal and God would throw some to the left and some to the right. Some would be sheep and some would be goats. Some would go to heaven and some would go to hell. And uh, the, um, and I've over the years even heard some go as far as to say God was going to just weigh everything we did. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you get to go to heaven, you go with the sheep. And if your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, well, you're a goner. Now, that kind of concept is uh, maybe plays well, maybe it's good for the Hollywood, and perhaps some, um, some uh, with wrong motives have used it to create fear in people. But I will say this, anybody who has that kind of an idea of a general judgment is going to live in fear and without peace. Now, to some degree, a godly fear certainly is good, but you know, God's people need to certainly be more understanding of Scripture because God wants us to have peace. There are actually four major judgments listed in Scripture. The first two, of which last week we talked about one and today the second, are the ones that we want to be part of. Even though they're judgments, we actually want to be at those judgments. The second two are ones we don't want to be part of, and that's what we're going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks. Now, when we talk about judgment, we say, well, you know, that just sounds too, uh, uh, that's just not politically correct in 2017, Pastor, to get up and talk about the judgment of God. We need to talk about the love of God. Well, let me uh, tell you, I'm a firm believer in the love of God, but I really believe this, and I, I read a statement that I think it kind of capsulizes why I'm preaching on the judgment of God. And that is this, if men will not understand the meaning of judgment, they will never come to understand the meaning of grace. And so that's why we're talking about judgment, because it really gives us, I think, a deep understanding and an accurate understanding of the grace and the love of God. Well, judgment day and the end days certainly are confusing and lots of people have ideas. There was a Bible study group that was discussing the unforeseen but real possibility of their sudden death. The leader of this discussion said, hey, we're all going to die. None of us really know when, but if we did, we all want to make sure we do a better job of preparing ourselves, right? Everybody shook their head in agreement. The leader said to the group, what would you do if you knew you only had four weeks of life remaining before your death? And then there was the great judgment day. A gentleman in the group said, I would go out to my community and minister to those who have not accepted God into their lives. Very good, the leader said. All the group members agreed, right thing to do. 
Another lady spoke up and said very enthusiastically, I would dedicate all of my time and all of my resources to serving God and my church, and I would make sure I gave with a greater conviction than ever. That's wonderful, the group leader commented, and everybody agreed. One gentleman, however, in the back uh, commented, and uh, he finally spoke up very loudly and said, I would go to my mother-in-law's house for the four weeks. Everybody looked at him, puzzled by his amper. The group leader said, why would you go to your mother-in-law's house? Because that would make it the longest four weeks of my life. (laughs) There you go. Well, I hope this is not the longest sermon of your life, but uh, hopefully we will find out what really Judgment Day is all about. Let's all bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look into your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would gather our thoughts and our minds together. Give us, Lord, the peace of God that passes understanding as we understand the biblical thoughts about judgment in Christ's name. All right, let's do a little bit of remembering. If you weren't here last week, this will just be a sermon in a second. There are four judgments, four major judgments. The first one is the judgment at the cross. The fact is all sin will either be pardoned in Christ or punished by Christ. No sin ever slips by unjudged. I say that again. No sin ever slips by unjudged. It's just a fact. We might be able to slip it by our parents or our spouse or the law, but it will never be unjudged by God. Now, the good news is if you're saved, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, then for you that judgment has already been passed. Because according to Colossians chapter 2, he nailed all of my sins, he forgave all of my sins, all of my past sin, all of my present sin, and all of my future sin. It has all been placed upon Jesus Christ. He forever took the wrath of God in my place. He is my substitute. That is the great exchange. That is the judgment of the cross. Thank God for the judgment of the cross. And that's a judgment that we praise him for this morning. Now, some have said, well, you know, why don't you just preach about love? Well, you can't preach about love without preaching about the judgment that the Father had to bring forth on the Son for my sake. And so that's the first judgment. But there is a second judgment, and this one is absolutely, undoubtedly for believers. It is called the judgment seat of Christ. Now, some people have the idea that because all of my sins were judged at the cross, that all of the judgments behind me, and it doesn't matter what I do. But I will tell you this morning, never imagine that how we serve God makes no difference. It does. And Paul is going to clarify that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's go to verse number 9, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9. All right. Uh, If you'll put that up there, good, thank you. If you uh, want to read there or read from your a Bible there. This is from the King James Bible. Let's read it first verse. Let's read, in fact, uh, four verses together. Ready? Out loud. Ready? Begin. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. 
But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. No other foundation can no man lay than is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Now if any man build on this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. All right. Here the Apostle Paul is likening our lives to that of a building. We're all building something. Now, in some cases, that building is doing pretty good. I mean, you got a good foundation. You know, you're building those walls strong. you got a good roof covering your family and your life. You're doing a pretty good job. Others of us, maybe uh, our house is a, a little in trouble, and we've got some problems with it. And he said, now, when you build your house, there's different materials we can use. And he gives at least six different materials. And he talks about gold and silver and precious stones, very hard, very solid. Uh, uh, these are great building materials. Then he build, talks about other ones, wood and hay and stubble. Now, what is the difference between the, the wood and the hay and the stubble and then the precious metals and the precious stones? What's the difference? There's one big and very glaring difference, if you just think about it for a second, and that is one of them is something you just kind of grab off the surface. Relatively easy to build with. I mean, you know, stubble and hay is something just kind of grows. You just grab some and put it on a roof or something. Uh, wood, maybe, you know, it takes a little bit of work, but it's just there. But boy, I tell you one thing, if you want to get some metal, you want to get some gold, some silver, it's not just laying around. It is hard work. People are still mining up there in the mountains. I was talking with a man just a week ago or so, and he said he'd been out diving. And I said, what were you diving for? He was up in the mountains there, some lake. He said, I was diving for gold. I said, you were looking for gold? Really? He said, yep. I thought, oh my goodness. I can't imagine anybody doing something like that, but he really loved to do it. But you know what? If you're going to find gold, you've got to dive or you've got to go inside. But uh, it is not something that's easy. You've got to dig for it. Gold and silver, very expensive. Now look what verse 13 says. Verse 13, if you would please. All right, let's read that together. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, did I read that correctly? The Bible said that the fire is going to try the works of my life. That's exactly what it says. One author called this the torch test. And as when I stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, God is going to take a torch and he is going to put the torch to it. And if it's wood, if it's hay, uh, it's just going to go up in flames quickly. But if it's precious stones, gold, and silver, it's just going to remain. Now, what is this torch test? Well, there's an actual name for it in Scripture. Go to Romans chapter 14 and verse 10. Romans 14 verse 10, part B says this, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Say that little phrase with me, please. The judgment seat of Christ. Let's say it again. What is it? The judgment seat of Christ. That's what it is. It is a judgment seat. People say, well, I just don't believe in the judgment. Well, 
then you're just not a biblical Christian because judgment is a very real part of Scripture. In fact, the more I've been studying this uh, messages series, I thought, you know what, there are so many different kinds of judges. For example, when you become a Christian, you're supposed to self-judge yourself. God tells us that we're supposed to look at our life and we're supposed to examine ourselves. That's being a judge. There's also the judgment that takes place from the sense of discernment. Uh, For example, the Bible said, don't ever cast your pearl before swine. Be discerning enough not to, you know, give out so much to some people because they have no heart to receive it and they'll just make them mad or whatever. And so God says, use your discernment. That's judgment. There are all kinds of judging. There are, there is certainly uh, the judgment of uh, God brings upon nations and people. Even today, there are judgments. There are, are judgments that because we sin, we have immediate judgments. I mean, you can't, you know, just uh, drink certain things or do certain things to your body without not getting some sort of physical judgment. So actually judgment is a very, uh, a very prominent part of Scripture. But it is so important to keep it in our mind correctly or we'll get this wrong concept of God. This, con- this judgment is called the judgment seat of Christ. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians 5. He says it again. Here the Apostle Paul says the same phrase. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Twice he said, nobody gets a pass on this. Everybody stands before God. You say, well, I don't have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ because, you know, I've been this really good Christian. No, the Bible says all of us. In fact, the rest of that verse says that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that which he had done, whether it be good or bad. God just pretty much lays it on the line. He just throws everything into two big groups, good things and bad things. Now, the judgment seat of Christ, if you were to go to your Strong's Concordance or uh, you were to go to a lexicon and you were to look that word up, that's actually the judgment seat of Christ is actually just one word in the Greek. It is called bema, B-E-M-A. It is a word taken from the Greek games. The contestants would uh, compete for the prize. They would try to win that gold medal or they would try to win that particular crown that was uh, the indicating that they won the event. Now, as they would uh, compete in those uh, Greek games, the judges would be very careful to watch. Nobody could cheat. Nobody could go out of bounds. Nobody could start too early. Nobody could, you know, cut any corners. No. They, the judges were absolutely watching everything they did. I mean, they were, judges were everywhere. They had to make sure that every single rule was obeyed. The victor of any given event, whether it be running or throwing the javelin or something like that, had to participate according to the rules. If they won, they then would be brought up to the bema. The bema is a platform, not unlike the platforms in our Olympic Games. In fact, many of the symbolisms in our Olympic Games 2,000 years later come, go all the way back to those Greek games. People would stand on a platform. They would get a medal there. They would get a, a wreath uh, on their head or a laurel. And this would be the symbol of victory. It was a reward seat. 
Now, if you won, you got a crown. If you lost, you didn't get beat. They didn't whip the losers. And some people have the idea that the judgment seat of Christ is a place where we're going to get beat up by Jesus. No, there are rewards, but they're certainly not going to be beaten. That's already been taken care of. It is a place for rewards. Now, I know some people are really troubled by the concept of a judgment seat of Christ where we get rewards. I mean, some folks just really flip out about that. They have the idea that that sounds like somehow we're earning the merit of God and that, you know, if you, uh, if you somehow get rewards and other people don't get rewards, that's not fair. But when we need to understand that these rewards that we get are based on a decision to serve the Lord. It is true that God places the decision or the desire in me. It is true that God gives me the power to carry it out. But the decision to do it is left on me. And that, according to God, is rewardable. And so the way he works his rewards are this. It's up to you. You can either deny Christ or not. We can either say yes to Jesus or no to Jesus. But that decision is the basis of the rewards. And that's what he says in verse 13. He said, every man's work or decision, every man's decision to serve God or not will be made manifest. The day shall declare it. It shall be revealed. Do you see those words? Manifest, declared, revealed. Three times God said, it's going to be all in the open. It's going to be there. It's going to be laid out there. Absolutely, the lights are going to come on. The other day I had one of those uh, lights on, everything revealed moments. I walked into the bathroom. It was dark, our master bathroom. Walked in there, hit the button, and I mean to tell you, I felt like I was in an operating room. The lights were full blast. I was like, what is going on? Well, Apparently, my beloved wife needed to see something in there, and so she had turned all the lights up. It was just bright. Well, that was a little bit too much honesty for me and genuineness. I don't want to see those kind of things in the mirror. I was like, oh, my goodness, what is that? You know, I turned the lights way down there. Yeah, I look a lot better now, and uh, I did not like the light. I did not like the, the revealing that took place there. And the older I get, the more I just do not like the light. Pretty soon I'll be doing all my makeup in the dark. And uh, now the light reveals. I don't do makeup, just my fingernails. Um, The light reveals. uh, Now, folks, you can uh, fool your pastor. Uh, Probably not, but you probably can try. I don't want to ever give you the idea that you can uh, escape. You know, I want you to see those eyes and that finger. You know, Pastor will find me out. You know, yet you're right. He will. But, uh, but the fact is, you probably can trick the pastor. I don't check up on people. You know, I don't have your bank account. I don't have your email address. I know sometimes you think that, but I don't. And, uh, or we may have it in the files, but I don't, uh, you know, I don't check and see what you're doing with your computer. Now, you might be able to trick your pastor. You may be able to trick your parents or your spouse. I will tell you, you will never fool God. It says it'll all be made manifest. It'll all be revealed. One day, 
the things we're doing will be either found out to be wood and hay and stubble, or they're going to be precious stones, one or the other. That's called the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus is the divine building inspector. He's going to make sure that we're building at the right materials, we're doing it in the right way, not cutting any corners, making sure that it's done according biblically. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day. Look at that word, the day shall declare it. What is that day? Let's, uh, let's do a few things here to kind of get this in mind. Let's talk about the point or the time of that day. The point. Now, when does the judgment seat of Christ take place? Now, we might think, well, I don't know, when some place in the future. Well, actually, we kind of have an idea of when it might take place. Because in Revelation chapter 19, when the Lord returns with His bride, the church, when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation period, it appears that the bride already has those rewards. She is arrayed in fine linen, which we would assume are the uh, good things that the saints have done. Now, I need uh, four volunteers that would help me up here. Uh, um, just raise your okay, come up here. Stephen, okay. And uh, a couple others here. I need some people who can put their hands up or down, okay. All right. One over here, okay. Okay, come on up. Yep, good. All right, let's take a couple from this side. Anybody over here? Raise your hand. I need four people. So I need two. Oh, I need one more. All right. Okay, come on up, brother. Okay. All right, so Stephen, come on over here. All right. And so you're going to kind of space yourself equally here. Well, actually, uh, okay, Stephen, you come here. J uh, Stephen, down there. Okay. Move this way, okay? You two guys are going to be sort of close, okay? All right. And then you're that, okay? All right. So uh, these are going to be four major events, and we're going to symbolize it um, by a certain way. So you're going to be the cross, which is a major point in the time continuum, all right? So you're going to be the cross. There you go. Good symbol, see? Okay. All right. So that took place. Uh, you've been eating good. And uh, so um, good. you got a good woman there. And uh, that's why I wear a coat, you know. But, uh, um, so uh, about uh, 30 A.D., 30 or Eighty or so, the cross came. Now, it's been 2,000 years, all right? The next event is the rapture, so you're going to go like that, okay? We're going to go up, okay? All those that are dead in Christ, up they go. All those that are alive in Christ, when He comes, up they go, all right? And Stephen, seven years after the rapture is going to be the second coming, just a little bit, okay? All right, and you point down because... We'll be in heaven, if you're part of the rapture, you'll be in heaven, and then you'll come back down to the earth. So you're pointing down to the earth, okay? All right, and then um, you are going to be the new heaven and the new earth. So go like this, yeah, right. The new heaven and new earth, all right. So um, now, where are we right now? Well, I'll tell you where we are. We're right here. All right. I mean, we are. Whoa, that's a good smell right there. And uh, I'm just kidding. He's a he's. Anyway. Um, so that's the. This is the rapture, and we're about ready. We are the rapture generation. We're ready to go. We're right here, folks. Okay. 
Now what's going to happen? When is the judgment seat of Christ? Well, this is the judgment on the cross. This is judgment number one. There is another judgment, judgment number three, which we're going to talk about next week, which is the judgment of the nations. And I'll tell you where that takes place later. And then there is a fourth judgment called the great white throne judgment, which is another time. But the judgment seat of Christ takes place right here. Probably sometime between the rapture and the second coming of Christ, the judgment seat takes place. Because when the second coming happens, when we come to the earth, the bride already has her rewards. And so sometime during the tribulation period, uh, maybe at the marriage supper of the Lamb, something like that, that's when the judgment seat takes place. All right? Let's give these wonderful guys a good hand. Thank you for enduring my uh, bad humor there. All right, the point. Now the place. Somewhere in the heavenlies. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 says, a trumpet talking with me, which says, come up hither. Come up hither. Where does the judgment seat of Christ take place? It's in the heavenlies. We use the word heavenlies because it could be in the first heaven, which is the air. Could be in the second heaven, which is the space as we know it, or it could be in the third heaven, which is the eternal heavens. There was a throne set in heaven. We're not sure if during the tribulation period, uh, maybe you will see it. Who knows? But somewhere in the heavenlies, and I will tell you that heaven is not some place where a bunch of people sit on clouds and strum harps. No, there is this wonderful throne. It is a place. The point, the place, the participants at the Bema. Remember, the Bema is a platform, a heavenly platform. Now, every passage dealing with the Bema always is addressed to believers. There will be no unbelievers at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's good and very, very important to understand. This is not a sin judgment in the sense of heaven or hell. It is a reward judgment on the basis of things done for God. There are no rewards for unbelievers. It can't be for the unbelievers. I was talking with a man uh, not too long ago. He's an unbeliever, a, uh, just a, a very uh, racy individual. And we were chatting, and he said, and I laughed at something he said, and he said, you know, I think when I stand before God, I think I'm going to get a reward for making people laugh. And uh, I said, well, that's good for you to believe. I'm not sure about that one. The fact is, there are no rewards for making people laugh. There are no rewards for making people happy. If you're an unbeliever, there are no rewards. I mean, it's just not going to happen. The only reward is going to be hell for rejecting the blood of Jesus Christ, for putting your foot and stomping it in the ground. Now, what is the plan at the Bema? There are at least three rewards. First of all, crowns. There are certainly probably other rewards, but there's at least three of them. You say, what are crowns? Well, they're not medals that we wear on our chest, kind of boasting about the wars we did. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 10, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that is on the throne, worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne. What are the crowns that we receive? There are several crowns listed in Scripture. We'll not take time to talk about them. 
but there is a crown of rejoicing. There's a crown for those who, you know, suffer for Christ. There's a shepherd's crown. There's different crowns listed in Scripture. But the reason behind them is to be able to give something to God. Have you ever wished you could give more to the Lord? I'll tell you what, when we stand before God, we will fall on our face and be able to lay those crowns. You say, well, I don't, I don't believe in work, working for rewards. Would you believe in working to give something to Jesus? That's the better way to look at it. I'm, just not, I'm not looking for a crown for myself. I'm just thankful to be able to put something at the feet of Jesus someday. Then there are treasures. Another type of rewards uh, are treasures. Matthew, for example, chapter 6, verse 20 said, lay up treasures in heaven. What are these treasures? God said, don't always just be about buying cars and houses. Nothing wrong with that, but do more with your money than that. Make sure you're laying up heavenly treasures. There are, the Bible talks about the treasures of love and of grace and of mercy. And so these are wonderful things of eternal value. I can tell you two things that are of eternal value that we touch every day. One of them are souls, and the other is the Word of God. Two eternal things that every day I get to work with. Those eternal things, I think, are treasures because they are of lasting value. Then there is a third area, I think, that we um, can uh, reward, and those are special responsibilities. You may have read in Luke chapter 19 where God talks about giving people rewards in the future days. And he said, I will give you the ability to rule over several cities if you'll be faithful to the Lord. And so apparently, God gives people ruling over areas. We do know he talks about principalities or a prince over a municipality. So maybe God somehow gives people ruling over certain areas. Maybe in the millennium. Maybe that's what he's referring to. But I tell you one thing, it's intriguing. One thing I can tell you is I've asked the Lord to let me rule over San Joaquin County. And when someone from the planning commission comes up to me and says, um, we would like to build a government building over here, I will say, I want an environmental impact, um, uh, report. I want to make sure, and I'm going to put them through the, everything. And then at the end, I'm going to say no. Now, I'm not sure about that, uh, but one thing I am sure about, when I am uh, mayor over San Joaquin County, there will be an In-N-Out burger on every corner, thank God, bless God, and uh, that's what I'm saying. So there are special responsibilities, and I want to be over some area, and uh, those people that give you some uh, bad uh, time, just say, well, I'm going to tell you something right now, when I am mayor of this city, you're going to be in big trouble. You just go down there and tell them. Now, there are two at least analogies, I think, that really portray what the judgment seat of Christ is really like. First of all, a Thanksgiving dinner. You'd say, what do you mean? Well, you know what Thanksgiving's like, right? You go to Thanksgiving, and there's all these wonderful foods. There's gravy, there's turkey, there's ham, there's dressing, there's cranberry sauce, there's pumpkin pie and sweet potato pie, and I mean, there's so much good stuff. You just, you just name it. There's cake, and wow. Now, at that Thanksgiving dinner, some people are going to get everything. Other people will only get something, but I will tell you this. 
everybody gets way too much. Amen. And that's really what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. It's not about, you say, well, I'm going to feel bad if somebody has a big old plate. No, you'll be saying, you know what? They can have it. I've got my plate and I'm thankful for that. And that's really the sense of the judgment seat of Christ. Nobody's going to be jealous that somebody has more rewards than others. It's just that everybody is having a great time eating as much as they want. That's a good analogy. A second analogy might be a graduate at commencement. A graduate at commencement. The, everybody gets to graduate. And some may be more excited than others that they got this award or that award, but thank God we all get to graduate. And so the judgment seat of Christ, I think, is a good analogy in both of those. Now, how will God judge our work? There are three ways that God judges our work. First of all, it's judged on the basis of willingness. That is our motivation. What motivates us to do what we do? Not only what we did, but why we did it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, the Apostle Paul explains the driving passion that kept him going. Why did he just keep going in the midst of everything? Let's go to chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. That's one of the verses that God used to call me into the ministry. Verse 17, for if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. Notice the word willingly. Say that word with me. What is it? Willingly. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a what? Reward. I have a reward if I do it willingly. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. He said, you know what? I serve God because of the great need that's out there, but I, it's not just because of the need and I feel compelled and angry that I have to do it. I do it willingly. I suffer, I go through all I go through, but I do it willingly. He wasn't serving just to be seen. He was serving because he loved God, he loved souls, and he was doing it willingly. One of the great keys to serving God is doing it willingly. Now, I know you might be drugged to church, but you know what? It's so, it's so much better just to come willingly. I remember um, reading the story about a lady that was talking to her husband, and he, it was Sunday morning. He was laying in bed, and she walked and said, what are you doing? It's, we, it's time to go to church. He said, oh, man, he was, you know, belly aching. She said, honey, you, you, come on. And uh, he said, well, give me one good reason why I should go to church. She said, well, she said, you, so I said, I'll give you three good reasons. First of all, you always enjoy it when you go. I mean, you always love it. Number two, the music is going to be great. And number three, you're the pastor and you need to go there. And... Uh, and, you know, sometimes pastors even don't want to get up. But you know what? The Bible is willingly. I want to serve God willingly, not just for image sake. I was driving down the road the other day. I saw a used car dealer. The name? 
image car sales. I thought, oh, brother, who would buy a car from them? Image. It's all about the image. My car is who I am. <laughs> I don't know. That's what that says about me, driving an old 58 bug for sure. But willingness and then truthfulness. Are you serving God according to the Word of God? Does your life have the stamp of heaven on it? Does God approve? Well, uh, we're doing what we, well, is it a God-approved life? And we can't change the rules just because we love somebody. We can't do something wrong because we have always done things my way. Do you remember the old Frank Sinatra song? And now the end is near. And so I faced, I have no idea if this is the tune, the final curtain. My friend, I say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway, but more, much more than this, I did it my way. I did it my way. Well, let me tell you, if you do it your way, you will end up in hell. That's where your way is going to find you. There's a blasphemous book that was written this past year called A Year of Living Biblically. Strange enough, written by a Jewish guy. A Year of Living Biblically. His point? You can't live a literal biblical lifestyle. It's impossible. But he was totally off base. And as typical with people who try to understand the Bible without the Spirit of God. Because the letter killeth, but the Spirit gives life. You've got to be saved. You can't understand a spiritual book with, that, with your brain. That's why all these Harvard Divinity School and all that stuff is a bunch of garbage. Garbage. You say, did you say garbage? Yep, I did. I did. I said that. I said garbage. The fact is, living biblically is the best way to live. People say, we need to make the Bible more relevant. Trust me. The Bible is the most relevant book that there's ever been. We need to bring the generations up to the Bible, not the Bible down to the generations. I mean, come on. God's eye view on any subject is the best eye view. This man who wrote this book just didn't understand. You've got to accurately apply Scripture to make it work because the Bible is true. It makes wise the simple. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, it makes wise the simple. 19, verse 9 says, it's righteous altogether. For example, just one example. This world talks about a weekday and a weekend, right? That's basically how the week is constructed. Five days and two days, right? Am I right? I'm not tricking you. That's just what it says. That's what they do. Weekday and weekend, right? Okay, that's what it does. But how does God divide the week? God divides the week into six and one. The biblical concept is six and one. The worldly concept is five and two. And the reason they like that is because Sunday is no different than Saturday to them. It's not Sunday, it's fun day. I can't give up my Sundays. That's my weekend. I know. It's the Lord's day in Scripture. Six days a man works, on the seventh day you give it to the Lord. That's the Bible concept. But if you think it's your day, then you're gonna have a, we're going to have a completely different mindset. And that's why 
when we serve God, we must serve Him accurately or truthfully, willingly, truthfully, and finally in faithfulness. God requires from each person what He holds them responsible for. To some have been given one ability, to some other abilities. And so God requires certain things. For example, I believe with all of my heart that every American will be held to a higher standard than any other nation on this earth. We have been given more than anybody else, and we need to do something with what we have. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, an amazing verse. If you ever suffer from comparing low self-esteem, this will, this will put some jazz in your backbone. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they, listen to this, but they measuring themselves by themselves. Uh, that's the problem. Well, I'm shorter, I'm taller. They measure themselves by themselves. Comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Basically, Paul was saying here, if you've been given spiritual gifts, don't ever think you're somebody or nobody God has given you the gift He's given you. I mean, just because one man's given the gift of being a pastor and speaking all the time doesn't really make him a better person than someone who maybe is serving in the nursery or custodian. It's just that God has certain gifts. And so God says, look, you're not, you're not somebody because of your gift. You're somebody because of God. And we have such a tendency to compare ourselves. I know ladies who just feel so like they can't do anything because they have 10 kids. Let me tell you something. If you just get those kids bathed and clothed and educated, I promise you, you are a, you are a, you are a, a Mary in the Bible. You are an Elizabeth. You are a godly woman. You're doing great. Don't be down on yourself. Some man, you know, has to work eight, ten hours a day, some hard labor. He comes home. He just can hardly do all that he'd like to do. And he hears about all these things other people are doing. He said, man, I just don't have the energy or the time or the money. And God knows that. God knows exactly what we're going through. And he wouldn't ask you to do anything that somebody else. I know even physically, as I get older, I just can't do some of the things I once did. You just, you get so frustrated. You get so mad at yourself, like you're not somehow pleasing to God. You know what? God understands our age, our body, understands everything about us. And God will never judge us with a standard that's not fair or right. He, what he wants is for us just to be faithful and to function according to our shape. I read this, adjusted a little bit, but I think it's excellent. Our shape. Everyone has a unique shape. S, our spiritual gifts. Very unique. H, handicap. We all have different challenges. Physically, some might have crooked feet or legs. Others might have crooked teeth or eyes. Some may have a, a mental horsepower down here. Others may have a mental horsepower up here. It just, that's a God thing. That's a, God has, we all have certain handicaps. Some are great people, people, others are great thing people. Some, you know, we just, we all have certain handicaps, physical things about our life. And God understands that. I mean, he put it there. He just wants us to function with the, with the spiritual gift and within the handicap that's placed there. As Paul said, our handicaps often keep us humble. A is our abilities. We all have different abilities. 
I mean, I'm five foot seven on a good day. I am not going to be able to dunk the ball. Now, there are some five foot seven guys. There was a guy in the NBA for years called Spud Webb, and he could dunk the ball five foot seven. But I promise you, I'm not going to even come close to the bottom of the net, let alone dunking a basketball. It's just not going to happen. I mean, I don't care. I could train until the day I die. I would never be. (laughs) That's just not within my abilities. Personality, all have different personalities. And then experiences in life. The fact is, all of us have different experiences. For some of you, you have an intact family. Others have broken family. And to, increasingly, it's hard to find a family that hasn't been attacked by the ravages of sin or bodies or lives. And so, with each case, we have different experiences. The fact is, are you using what you have? God will never compare you to somebody else. Verse 14, let's go back. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. One day each one of us will give an account for the opportunities and the gifts that God has given us. I believe the greatest preachers that have ever lived are likely ones that nobody's ever heard of. They're serving away in some country church out there faithfully studying hour by hour, faithfully giving the gospel out, developing outlines and preaching to 20 or 30 people. But God, they're overworked and underpaid, but bless God, God knows who they are. And they, those people are going to have these amazing rewards in heaven. There may be some country somewhere unknown and unsung, some dear preacher down there and. uh Africa just preaching for Jesus, somebody out there in South America, I don't know. But I do know this, God is the one who is so wise and he sees everything we're doing. Everything is going to look different in the white light of eternity. I was talking with a man not long ago and somehow it came out that I was a pastor and in the course of the conversation I asked if he was ready to meet God. It's a question I asked quite a few nowadays, seems like more and more. Are you ready to meet God? And he was like, well, I, yeah, I think I'm ready to meet God. And I said, why? Why do you, what gives you that assurance? He, well, I guess I've, you know, in this case, he said, I really honestly don't even think, I think when we die, we just poof, we're gone. I said, really? That's just, I said, where'd you get that? You know, I don't just what I believe. I said, so let me get this straight. You're gonna, you're gonna, you are gonna take the chance that for the rest of your eternity, you were right. I, I asked him, "Have you ever been wrong before?" Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know what? Why take the chance of spending eternity away from God in hell just because we have some concept we're not gonna stand before God? No, the fact is, people believe that because. It helps their lifestyle. They don't want to feel guilty with what they're doing, or they don't want to give authority to God. The fact is, you know what? We are all going to stand before God. You know what encouraged the Apostle Paul? What encouraged the Apostle Paul was that he was going to get a reward someday. In fact, much of 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians was built on that concept. Paul was rejoicing in all that God was going to do in the rewards. And I think it's significant that one of the last verses in the Bible is this, Revelation twenty-two, twelve, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, 
to give every man according as his work shall be. We live next to a vineyard. The owner of the vineyard decided to uh, uproot it and replant it. To, uh, the vines were old and wanted to get a different variety, uh, please the current palate of consumers. The, um, we noticed here a few couple months ago that we had an unbelievable problem with mice. I mean, they were just everywhere. We kept, we had traps outside, we had traps inside. We were just, it was terrible. Then we realized what had happened. Out in that field, these, uh, these mice families were just so secure. They had their little lives. They were marrying. They were having children. They were just having wonderful little mice lives. Everything seemed good to them until the big tractor came. And that big old tractor came with that big old long spike in the back. It must have been eight feet deep. And boy, that guy came along there and he started ripping that field. And I mean to tell you, that big old D9 caterpillar with big old tracks and big old giant spike. And it was just ripping down that field. And I mean to tell you, it was just uprooting every life. Now, all of a sudden, their lives were destroyed. And we paid the price in our house. But the point is this. I think so many of us look upon this world as our home. Oh, everything's fine. We're living our little lives, and we're buying and selling and eating and marrying and having our lives when we don't realize that the big D9 tractor, God's judgment, is about ready to start digging into this earth. Our lives will be uprooted. How much, how much we should be thinking about the coming judgment. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you would please, with me this morning.